Welcome to this episode of Gray Matter. I'm Michael Krasny. I'm pleased to be with you and pleased to welcome Leo Laporte as our guest. He is what I would describe as a tech pioneer, a much admired and respected veteran host, superior in explaining technology as both a radio and podcast host, as well as as an author. And he hosts The Tech Guy, where he, among many other things, where he takes questions from all kinds of callers and answers them on the spot with lucidity. Many agree that nobody explains tech better. And those of you listening to us live will have an opportunity of asking questions of Leo. You may want answered related to tech. Uh, we're going to try to get to as many of those as we can. In the meantime, uh, he's the founder and owner of the Twit Podcast Network, and he joins us for this episode. And I want to extend a warm welcome to him. Welcome, Leo. Thank you, Michael. So good to be here. Good to have you. And I want to mention that we once worked together on what was uh, not only the most longtime commercial rating, ratings leader uh, station here in Northern California, but one of the nation's most prosperous and profitable AM commercial radio stations. And we'll talk about the demise of that station mm-hmm. later on. But now I thought we'd begin by talking about something which is very much in the news now. And in fact, the first question is related to that uh, from the questions that you folks who are listening live are sending to us. And that is, um, Leo, as I said, runs something called the Twit Network. And people are saying, can Leo, can uh, Elon Musk really call himself the chief twit? No, in fact, he cannot. <laughs> but uh, he is the richest man in the world. He's kind of powerful. I don't know what I'm going to do about it. Um, we, Twitter came on along after Twit. And we have a trademark for Twit. And uh, I remember asking Ev Williams, who was the founder of Twitter. Originally, Twitter was TWTTR. And uh, I said, Ev, why you, did you you knew about Twit? In fact, I found out later he definitely knew about Twit because his previous company, Odeo, was a podcast directory. And we were featured all the time. They were all fans. I just talked to the guy who was the lead developer. He said, oh, gosh, yeah, we love Twit. So I know that Ev Williams knew about it. I said, Ev, why would you name your company Twitter? And he said, well, I didn't think either of us were going anywhere, so I figured it's okay. And it really was okay for a long time when Twitter was a social network and we were podcasting. But now Twitter has audio, they have video, um, you know. So I And, and this thing, he, I really bugs me because I've been the chief twit. That was my t- – it's on my business card. I'll show you. Uh, since 2007, I've been using chief twit. I mean, I don't know if you can copyright it, but – uh, I guess you could. We trademarked Twid. So, well, you've boilerplated it. I, is that the word? Anyway, I'm, I'm a little miffed. But what can you do? Well, you can go to court. I can, you can do all letter. kinds of things. I do possibly. not want to sue Elon Musk. I shouldn't say that out loud. Elon, I want to sue you. <laughs> well, what do you think this is going to do to Twitter? I mean, Twitter has oh uh, been hurting with profits. We can talk about that. They've been getting less tweets and all that. But he's talking about. Uh, Putting people like Kanye West and Donald Trump, I guess, back on Twitter, make Kanye's total free back. speech. Yeah, yeah. Kanye, Kanye's already back. He hasn't tweeted yet. I don't know if he can, but his account is, is visible. So there was a great article this morning in The Verge by Neelai Patel, friend, <clears throat> something to the effect of welcome to hell, Elon. Elon's got a real Hobson's choice here. Uh, on the one hand, he spent $44 billion, some of it his own money even, on a property that's nowhere near worth that much. He, he way overpaid, everybody knows that. Uh, and he has promised to his investors, and I'm sure to himself, to somehow recoup that money. Otherwise, what's the point? Maybe, it's, I don't know, maybe maybe he's being, uh, he, he says he's a, uh, 
you know, he's a benefactor to ha- all humankind. He, he actually compares he says he's going to help humanity. That's yeah, why he's Ga- doing it. To Gandhi. It. Yeah. Uh, no, I think he wants to make money. He's a businessman. It's going to be very hard to do that if he wants to stick to his other thesis, which is free speech. Be- and this is what Neil's point was. He, advertisers, in fact, the, the, he says the, the products of Facebook and Twitter and all social networks, Instagram, that's, the product isn't the engineering, the software. The product is their moderation. What they, do, what they do is shape the content so that you, as a nice person, come there and enjoy it. It makes you happy and you want to come back. And advertisers don't want to be on a platform that's evil and ugly and disgusting. So you need to moderate it. So if he wants to make money on Twitter, he's got to moderate it. But he's saying, oh, no, no. Let free speech rule. Well, that's a recipe for losing a lot of money. He's also saying, "I'm not going to have a hellscape here." To use that word, hell again. Yeah. He used. Well, it he can't himself. do both of those things. So, so Neil's point is, he's stuck. He's there's nothing. There's no good play for him at this point. He's either going to moderate it, get advertising, but lose. And you know how the right is. They will turn on him. The knives will come out within 24 hours if he starts moderating it. So he's going to lose that, and he, he think he really wants them to like him, or he doesn't moderate it, and he loses all revenue. It's not a good position. Well, it prompts me to ask you a question about, I mean, someone like Musk, who not only SpaceX and Tesla, but now t- Twitter. I mean, he's in a class all by himself, like you said, the richest man in the world. But how much the I was thinking about, you know, tech titans and how much they really control. They get criticized from the left and they get criticized from the right and they have the knives out on both sides. Yeah. And they have to ask the question, how much really power over policy do they have? They have power over our minds. They can grant well, you any, our hearts. Any billionaire has power over policy in this country, right? Of I mean, course. But, I mean, they even more than, say, Bloomberg or people like that. I don't that. know if that's the case. I think as long as you have enough money to deliver it in black bags to members of Congress, uh, you're, you're doing okay. Is that the medium of delivery now? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. At what, well, for a long time, tech, especially famously Google, eschewed having anything to do with D.C. and politics. They realized, you know, about five years ago, oh, that, that was kind of a big mistake, and they moved in big time. And so they pump a lot of money into Washington right now. I think Elon, you know, so there's different kinds of tech ownership of media. There's Jeff Bezos buying the Post, Probably doesn't influence it too much. There's Lorene Powell Jobs, who owns The Atlantic. Certainly does not influence it, but I'm sure wants it to stay a little left of center. Uh, Elon is more hands-on than that. I don't see him being a benevolent uh, operator at a distance. He already fired the CEO, the CFO, and most importantly, the the woman who banned Donald Trump, the, the, the... person was in charge of trust and safety and two general counsels and two general counsels yeah. so he's already cleared the deck of adult supervision who's going to run this now elon does he want to you know if he if he does he'll run it for you know he's a kid he'll he'll lose interest and he'll move on well you're right in saying he's in it for the profit he's a businessman above all probably. i think he has to be yeah but where now for example that zuckerberg's losing money left and right on uh, his investments. Uh, I think the last profit dip I saw was well over fifty percent, or certainly. Yeah, they've lost seven hundred billion in valuation. I mean, it's incredible. But he has all this alternative reality faith that it's going to happen, uh, virtual reality, right. and uh, and the fact is, tech is losing money. Tech's in a winter phase now. Well, you might say that Mark ha- Mark's a smart guy. I think 
ha- realize this. This is the classic. You know, well, he says it's the future. Yeah, this is the classic innovator's dilemma. When you get really successful in one area, there's a. It's very hard for you to pivot. So Mark's doing what is normally a very hard thing to do. He's pivoting a successful company into what he sees as the future. Now, no one knows if the metaverse is the future, but Mark's decided that. So he's, in a way, doing a very courageous thing, and he is losing his shirt on it. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's not looking good right now. Well, it's not necessarily looking good for tech overall since the pandemic. I mean, there's been some serious plummeting, except for maybe TikTok. And I want to talk to you about TikTok, because that seems to be the new paradigm and the place where real money is being made now, whatever real money means in that world. It's not... Real in terms of my uh, understanding of finance, because it's almost like monopoly money. But I'm I'm trying to get a a hold of what's happening with TikTok, particularly all this criticism of Chinese control yeah. about TikTok. Where do you see that? So, one of the things that's happened, in my opinion, is we've is we've shifted. The in the early days, the thought of social media was you follow your friends people who have something interesting to say. This is the model for Twitter. It was the original model for Facebook. Uh, that's kind of gone by the wayside. What now has happened is that it's really about content. Ultimately, we just want to sit and watch TV. So that's what TikTok is, is TV that you swipe up when you get tired of that and you go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. It's what Facebook wants to be. It's what YouTube is. Twitter is... So the a, dating apps are too. Yeah, yeah, right. Swipe left. So... Uh, I think TikTok has done better than anyone at figuring out how to keep people engaged for hours at a time. So much so that if you watch TikTok for too long, and I'm sad to say I've I've reached that point, a guy will come on and say, hey, you know, you might want to take a break, <laughs> get a drink of water, <laughs> take a nap. You've been on a long time. They literally say that. But this I, is a social dilemma, too, isn't it? I mean. Yeah. It's it's playing on our minds, and you know, yeah. I just read an article in Wired about uh, the necessity to find out how our minds are hacked and do something about it. Yeah. Well, there's some concern that the metaverse will even be better at that, right? You put on this helmet, and now you know we control the horizontal, we control the vertical. You're you're really at the mercy of uh, Mark Zuckerberg or whoever runs the other end. Mindforge manacles to use William Blake here, <laughs> but uh, we are kind of. Uh, I mean, all the studies uh, seem to indicate that what TikTok is doing is using billions of people, all this, I know you don't like artificial intelligence, but they're gathering data, more and more data all the time, and it's data based on, you know, sound like Carl Sagan, billions and billions of people who have been tested. So they make you look at a screen, you look at a screen and you think, I'm going to not look at the screen so long, but they keep you there and keep you there, and manipulate you in so many different ways. And we've always had that feedback loop. I mean, remember the vast wasteland of TV, they would do what get the most ratings, and it took a few years from Uncle Milty to uh, you know married with children. But eventually, it kind of went down to the lowest common denominator. So there was this kind of slow feedback loop. Well, all the text done is really make that be an almost instantaneous feedback loop. So they know immediately what game, gaming discovered this years ago uh, in World of Warcraft. Uh, the mechanism of the game, you, you, you play in a in virtual world where you're, a, you know, some sort of barbarian or a knight, and you, you go on uh, raids. And what they got was feedback as they, as they observe what you're doing about what loot that you gained, for, what made a raid more compelling, what made it more sticky is the term they use, more, more engaging. And they optimized this in a very tight loop. 
Well, that was 10 years ago. And you oh, did have it at the time. A lot since then. Well, you remember, though, at the time there were stories, scare stories about people. There was a guy in, in Korea who died because he couldn't yeah. go to the bathroom because he was playing World of Warcraft for so long. So TikTok is just kind of the current iteration of that thing. I, I don't I, I think it's really easy to look at this stuff and say, well, that's terrible. But, uh, you know, remember the you know moral panic over television. And I mean, this is just what's happening. I don't know if it's terrible. I think what will happen is at some point, and I, I see this happen with some people, certainly it's happened with me, people push it away and go, yeah, I'm losing my life to this. I don't want to do it. It it's, levens out. Yeah. But then you have somebody like Yuval Harari saying, um, gee, I didn't know I was coming out of the closet as a homosexual until I was 21, but at 14, they could have controlled me in a certain way and discovered my homosexuality by sure. the way I move my eyes. No more poker face. Right. right. But this is a guy who meditates 20 hours a day, so I'm not, I mean, he's, he, I don't know if he's the perfect example of this. I don't, I, I don't think the, the goal of any of these companies truly, and I guess you could say maybe TikTok could be at some point under the control of the CCP. But ultimately, the goal of all these companies is to keep you on the company so you see on the on the platform, so you see the advertising. It's, but what about what Fox News says, that TikTok is run by the Chinese government? Therefore, Fox they, News have is two perfect, al- they have separate algorithms. They have separate apps right, well, for TikTok. The Fox News is a perfect a- example of mini- media manipulation. And it's old school. It's a television network. But they have done more to warp the minds of America than TikTok ever did. It's it's a little bit of the pot, pot calling the kettle black there. Roger Ailes has more power than the Chinese government. Absolutely. And so does Rupert Murdoch. Yeah. Right? Right. Well, let's uh, go to some questions for you. The first thing was about the title. And this is actually from Cape Town, South Africa. Hasmuth Galjar, uh, who wants to, he says, I've listened to McBreak weekly since 2007. Who's your most memorable co-presenter in that era? Scott Bourne, Martin Mann, uh, <laughs> Frederick, others? Frederick's done very well. He just sold This Week in Photography to Smug Mug. Good, good on you, Frederick. I think Merlin Mann was always the guy who, there were a couple, so Scott Bourne was one of the names mentioned. He was famous because he was a host. Alex Lindsay was there as well with me. He was a host who knew that Apple was going to do an iPhone. This is back in 2006. I know they are. And he said, oh, they're going to do an iPhone. I know they are. And he said, and I'm going to buy, I'm going to make an iPhone vest. I am going to have so many iPhones. Uh, he was very excited. And he very famously, I was sitting next to him when the iPhone announcement happened. And he leapt to his feet. There was a picture on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle of him holding the first iPhone because he had waited in line all night and he, he had it in his hands. Uh, so Scott was certainly one of them. And he's still a podcaster. He's a great photographer. Merlin Mann, still a podcaster. One of the funniest guys I know. Um, Alex really started MacBreak Weekly uh, with MacBreak. What was that? Two thousand four, two thousand five, long time ago. Um, so we've had a, a, a series of very memorable characters. Well, speaking about people fun. you've worked with, and first iPhone, everything. You worked yeah. with Steve Gibson, first anti-spyware, right? Yeah, that's right. He uh, security now. He I met him uh, on Tech TV on the screensavers. I'll tell you how long ago it was. He had written a program to dis- discover if your zip disk could, was was going to damage your zip drive. <laughs> do you remember zip disks? <laughs> Some people do. <laughs> it's in my uh, memory bank somewhere, yes. <laughs> and so this was probably, what, 2000, 2001, and we've we forged a friendship, and he's been doing a security show for us since 2005. Uh, he promises 
He's done 880 or 90 of them. He says, I'm stopping at 999. I don't have room for four digits. So he says 999 is the last security now. So we figure we got about two years left to Steve. Well, you've done almost 2,000 episodes. Uh, of the Tech Guy, yeah. Of Tech Guy, yeah. yeah. I want to talk about the whole Tech Guy thing yeah. with you, too. There's no dearth of topics with you, obviously, and things that we can explore. And I want to get to more of uh, our listeners. But um, how do you curate that? How do you decide, for example... The tech field itself is so vast and everything's changing instantly almost. So how do you decide what you want to do? I'm very lazy, uh, Michael. So I don't really curate it at all. I just wander in on a Saturday, uh, turn on the microphone, and we open the lines. Um, I will, you know, as I'm coming in or maybe as I'm in the shower before, I'll think, well, what, you know, what would I like to, I usually start the show, as you know, every talk show host, you start with what's called a churn, right? And remember in the old days, you probably did this, you'd use a razor blade, you'd cut articles out of the newspaper and you'd bring it. We call it topicating. Yeah, topicating. (laughs) We were communicasters. (laughs) I like topicating. So, so nowadays, of course, you don't do that, but I do, that's kind of mostly what I do in my spare time is. Is is basically razor blade stories out of out of the internet, so that I have a whole bunch of stuff I can talk about. And usually, I try to because that show is a radio show, and most of the listeners are normal people. They're not the enthusiasts, the geeks that we have listening to the podcasts. I try to do stuff that I think would be of general interest. We talk a lot about TikTok and Facebook and the metaverse and all of that. In fact, stuff. I was listening to one recently. You were talking about AI and discovered you don't like the name AI, huh? Well, and Elon Musk, by the way, thinks it's of more should be more fearful to us than even new thermonuclear weapons. That's what he thought yesterday. Who knows what he's going to think tomorrow, yeah. right? Elon is a changeable beast. I, the problem uh, is mostly that every company these days wants to spread a little thin layer of AI on what they do, even though there isn't really any AI involved. So my point then was most computer programs are not AI. They're just computer programs. Somebody wrote it and said, if this happens, do that. If that happens, do that. And it does it so fast, it kind of looks like it's thinking. But real AI is the computer writing its own programs based on uh, looking at the world, collecting information. The best example of this is the is the uh, Alpha program, the Google Alpha program, uh, that plays chess and go, you know, that Deep Blue was the IBM program that built beat the world champion. Remember this about a decade Kasparov. ago? Yeah, yeah, Gary Kasparov. And uh, at the time, we all went, oh, my God, this is the end of chess. It wasn't. But well, now Google, they have cheating. <laughs> it was the beginning of cheating. Uh, Google decided, well, we want to re- build a real AI. The Deep Blue had been taught rules and had been given positions and said, this position is better for black. This position is better for white. Even, and Kasparov didn't like this, it had been taught how to play against Gary Kasparov. Here's how he plays. Here's what you do to throw him. Alpha Go and Alpha Chess didn't know anything except the rules of chess. And Google said, okay, you play yourself. It played millions of games in just four hours it became better than any human, just starting with the rules of chess and knowing that their one goal is capture the king. Be- that's real AI because it taught, it w- and we don't even, we can look at the data it's using and don't know how it's doing it. It is doing it beyond our ken. There's no human's instructions. They just are given the rules, given a goal. Go ahead, by playing hundreds of millions of games against itself, it figured out the best way to play. It did it with Go, which is much more difficult, the Japanese game of Go, than chess. Chess is pretty deterministic. If you could calculate enough, 
you could find out the rules, you know, for every move with the best moves. Yeah, I think the chess masters would agree with you. Yeah, it is yeah. deterministic. Here's another question from South Africa. Mahasmuk uh, wants to know, how did you uh, and Alex Lindsay's paths cross? You started this week in tech. Who coined McBreak Weekly? MacBreak Weekly was MacBreak. Alex coined that. Uh, he was doing the Pixel Core. He, like he does now, had all this equipment <laughs> and stuff and people. And he got together a few of us, uh, Amber MacArthur, me, Alex, and Emery Wells, and uh, his camera guy, who was, uh, was it Brent? Uh, and we went to Mac World Expo and did the first show, Mac Break. It was a video show. He did a few shows very famously. If you ask Alex, he'll tell you. Uh, we talked about it the other day on Mac Break Weekly. Uh, the first, he did an episode in 1080p. Now, back in 2005, 1080p was impossible. <laughs> you couldn't watch it. You couldn't edit it. You couldn't, but he did it. He did it with a very fancy camera he bought from uh, from Lucas. It was the model cam used in Star Wars. And uh, I said after that show, which took a month to make, something like that. It took him so long because it was so high quality. Uh, I said, what if we did just an audio version? I'll call it MacBreak Weekly because it can come out weekly now. <laughs> and you keep doing the video. So he kept doing the video. He came up with an I'm MacBreak. And I said, let's do, we'll do an audio partner show called MacBreak Weekly. Alex was always on it. He's been on it from the very beginning. And, uh, and that was 2005. It's been a long time. There's a question from Mexico City. Um, wow, this is great. This is Javier Alfaro. All over the world. Thank you for the questions. Uh, famously, Ian McKellen said, uh, quote, this is not why I became an actor moment after working purely on green screen. Have you had a similar moment after building such an awesome studio and then sitting around screens? And uh, Or did, uh, did being in radio get you prepared for it? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I didn't – I was the Ian McKellen in this scenario. I wanted to still do what I'd always done. Radio is very simple. It's you, you and a microphone. It's great, isn't it? It's the best medium ever. Love it. Couldn't be better. And you left a possible career as a Chinese historian to go to radio, right? <laughs> No, no, no. That was not going to happen. Uh, so I just decided, I, but one of the things I hated about radio studios, KGO was like this, they're sterile. And they got padding. They're kind of like this, frankly. And I decided I didn't want to be in a radio studio. I wanted to be in a comfortable, a place I wanted to be. Uh, and so I did it that way. And we were able, using good microphones and stuff, to make it sound as good as a radio studio. So I was the opposite. I was like Ian McKellen. I said, I want it to be like radio. And uh, it is true, especially during COVID, that more and more of our guests were not in person. But I have to say, it's kind of like VR at this point. You do a yeah. lot of your guests over Zoom. Yeah. It's almost like they're there. I see them. It would be nice if they would be in the same room. I came up here just so I could be in the same room with you. Yeah, and I appreciate you being here. Yeah. And uh, I think it's better that way. People listening to this episode may appreciate a little more learning about the tech guy, because um, I mentioned the Chinese history at Yale. You dropped out of yeah, studying that was Chinese never history. Happen. <laughs> yeah, but you know, became built this podcast empire. Now nobody would have associated a podcast empire with Petaluma, but there we have it. Um, but well, that's let, the beauty of it. You can do it anywhere. Exactly. But I wonder how things took place. How did you become the tech guy? I mean, talk about the genesis of that. Uh, so I was a general purpose talk guy. Uh, I was working, I'd worked at you know, KNBR in San Francisco. They were transitioning from um, 
kind of a middle-of-the-road music station into more talk. And so when I started working there in, uh, I think it was 87, um, I would play a song and then I might interview somebody for five minutes. You know, it was getting more and more talky. Eventually, I got it down to one song an hour. <laughs> it was pretty much talk radio. So I kind of forced this transition with the approval of management, I guess, into that. Then I went to work for KGO, a real talk station, KSFO and KGO, real talk stations, and did talk. But it wasn't, uh, it was when I was at KNBR, and this was probably um, 80, I can't remember, maybe 84, 85, actually. I started, uh, it, the program director came to me. I was doing the midday show and said, we've got this guy. He's really big in Sacramento. His name is Rush Limbaugh. And we're going to take you off the middays. Rush has just started syndicating. We're going to put him in. But good news, we're not going to fire you, uh, which was pretty good news. I just had a kid. Uh, we're going to give you the weekends. And you're going to do uh, a show about real estate, a show about food and wine, a show about cars, a show about home improvement. Literally, I did nine hours a day on Saturday and Sunday. And I was announcer guy. You were razoring a lot of articles. Yeah, no, no, I wasn't the expert. <laughs> so it was like the Carey brothers doing home improvement and Ray Brown doing real estate and that kind of thing. And I was just announcer guy. And uh, I said, okay, I, I can do that. I have to do that. But I've been talking uh, on my regular talk show to this guy named John C. Dvorak, who's a very well-known computer columnist. I had always, I had been writing for computer magazines well before then, for 10 years at least. Can we, so it was a hobby for me. Can we do a computer show? The programmer director said, no one wants a computer show. That's a terrible idea. I said, well, I'd like to do all these others. Just give me one hour for John and me. And I don't know why, but they relented. Because it really is like foreign language programming, even to this day. But imagine in the mid-'80s, like nobody knew what we were talking about. No, like I said, you were a pioneer. You were way ahead of the learning curve. I remember just to change anecdotes here, and then I want to go to more of our listeners. But uh, I was, I thought I'd do a show when I was at KGO, and I want to talk with you about KGO, I thought I'd do a show on golf. I never played golf. I didn't know much about it. But Why I thought, did you want to do that? Well, I, th I thought, you know, this would be a test of my uh, acumen. Can I yeah. learn about golf? And yeah. Because somebody had offered me a golf professional to be on the show. Perfect. So I thought, why not? I heard from the then program director, nobody cares about golf. And then soon after that, I read <laughs> it was the most wrong? popular sport in colleges. You know, it, it, it <laughs> was been so wrong. He says, young people don't care about golf. All that, I mean, they know things so well. I ask you, though, about KGO, because I don't want to get too local here because we're heard all over the world, but the fact of the matter is this is one of the biggest, most successful radio stations, as I said earlier yeah. on. We were both a part of it. So, so sad. Yeah. It's sad, and yet at the same time it's a metaphor in many ways for the takeover of digital. What's the future, if any, of terrestrial radio as you see it? Well, I mean, I don't blame the owners of KGO. I mean, it was a, it was a great radio station when you and I worked there. It was world famous, really, certainly right. nationally famous. It won all the awards, and it was just a traditional news talk radio station. You talk about the current events of the day. They had very good hosts. That's what makes a good talk radio station. They had a very good general manager, Mickey Luckoff, who really understood the business, and they were owned by not a radio company, but by ABC. They were owned by a network, which understood the value of news. And, you know, I imagine they made money in those days. What happened made was... made a lot of money, actually. Yeah, I would guess. Yeah. What, what happened, of course, was... The laws changed. Uh, was it under Reagan? Uh, maybe it was under uh, Clinton. The laws changed, and suddenly, instead, the rules used to be one own, one company could only own two or three stations in a market. 
because we want diversity in the market. The law has changed, and you could own as many as you want. And so what happened, of course, is two or three companies basically now own all the radio stations in the United States. So that was problem number one, right? No more diversity, uh, big cost-cutting, syndicated content, no more local hosts because they're expensive. Uh, a Michael Krasny, a Ron Owens, that's expensive. So they you know, brought in hosts from like Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh, yeah. who was expensive but not nearly as expensive and generated a lot more traffic, a lot more revenue. Um, but ultimately, what really has killed it is the Internet, of course, because people want to listen to what they want to listen to. I've always felt like the biggest advantage radio has over the Internet, and we were talking about this before the show, is live and it's local. Live and local. And, and the podcasts really aren't, I mean, we do ours live. You're doing it live right now, but it's not really live and local. It doesn't have that same, when you were listening to Ron Owens on KGO, he was talking about what's going on today in San Francisco. You don't have that anymore. Uh, but nobody listens to the radio anymore. Who listens to the radio? When would anybody listen to the radio? Especially well, it's free. AM. You can turn it on your uh, automobile and nobody play does. the radio on your because dashboard. Because you know what? We've <laughs> spoiled them because they can listen to any song they want now on their own device. That's right. If they want to hear about uh, golf, doesn't matter if the local radio station has a you golf, golf show. Networks. You got you, you There's a million golf podcasts. Yeah. So you, you, you listeners got control. And that was the end of it. You know, these big companies were not responsive. They weren't doing live local anymore. All of a sudden, the listeners got control. I think that, you know, I just saw a statistic from Edison Research. Uh, radio, AM and FM, including streams, by the way, which had about 80% of the market 10 years ago, is down to 47% of the market. Yeah. And the future is not bright. I have a nephew who is an executive at radio, and so I get all this... Yeah. Firsthand. It's um, sad because I think it's a great medium. And I miss live and local. I think that's really important. So do I. But, you know, even now we're talking uh, and I'm thinking there's a breaking story this morning. People hear this episode maybe weeks, months ahead and so forth. So there's a little more reluctance and apprehension about bringing it up. But I mentioned Steve Gibson before and security. And I'm struck by Paul Pelosi's oh, home being invaded so by sad. some guy two o'clock with a hammer. We don't know the <sighs> The facts of it now could have been political, could have been a crazy guy. Who the hell knows? But the reality is I kept thinking about security. What is so, I mean, if she didn't have her detail there, that is Nancy Pelosi for her husband, you're right on the cutting edge of what's hot in security now. We could spend a whole hour well, just talking about cybersecurity. <laughs> yeah. but I just want to get, because you've worked this out in some ways that maybe people would want to know. Home security. We don't, we don't really cover physical, physical security. Although no, home security. I'm just talking about these systems. days. Yeah. I mean, everybody can have cameras in every part of their house that alert them to movement, alert them to sound. They can have lights that come on. Uh, alarm systems have come a long way from, you know, uh, press a panic button and somebody will come out. And you can know ahead of time if somebody you you can secure your perimeter like a billionaire would <laughs> for for a lot less yeah. money now. There's companies like Wise W Y Z E that make cameras for thirty or forty dollars. You could put a dozen of them around your house, and and get an alert on your phone the minute there's any movement. You'll know every raccoon in the neighborhood before the night is done. So it's certainly possible to do a better job. But you know, if you think about it, Michael, I've always thought this. Locks on our doors, closed windows, those are more like serving suggestions. They're not really secure. They just say to the world, don't come in. 
But if somebody wants to come in, it's not going to stop them. And that's a big problem. I don't want to have to put bars on all my windows. Nobody wants to live that way. The truth is, the key to all of this is not law, but norms. The thing that keeps somebody from breaking down your door is not the law. It's the norm. The norm that you don't break down doors. That that door means don't come in. And as and we are in an era of norm-busting par excellence, thanks to Donald Trump and just kind of a, a, a after COVID, this kind of sense that, you know, it's all for me and me for one, me for me. American individualism taken yeah. reductio ad absurdum. Yeah, yeah. Well, we got once, let's be, we don't want to break in, but want to come in and talk with you. <laughs> the door is wide open. Uh, Kenneth Jones from Seattle says, we think this computer thing might just catch on. What do you think? <laughs> where will we be in 20 years? Well, any, any prognosticating about where this is all going? Uh, it's really hard to predict because uh, what makes technology exciting is these kind of left turns, these sudden paradigm shifts where, oh, I never thought about that. And so it's very often the case. called thinking out of the box. Right? Out of the box. Yeah. And it's very often the case that somebody like Mark Zuckerberg who says, well, I think it's going to be the metaverse is completely wrong because you can't really look that way. I can tell you what I know will happen. It's been happening. It's been the biggest trend in computing for the last 20 years is computing moving to the edge. So you remember your first personal computer. It had it was on your desk. It was big. Yours was, was a Atari 400, right? <laughs> How did you know that? Well, I pick up these things. <laughs> it had a presence, right? Now you have computers everywhere. In your microwave, in in your toaster oven, in your bed. I have a computer in my bed that knows if I'm tossing and turning and it changes the temperature in my bed. So you have computers everywhere and that's going to just increase. snuggle with it? I snuggle. Yeah, it's cute. Uh, That's that's actually the trend that's going to continue because with miniaturization, uh, with mass production, it's gotten so cheap. You can put that Atari 400 in a $20 camera now. And so you're going to see computers at the edge. Interfaces, as a result, have to change because I don't have a keyboard and screen on all of those computers. So right now we're controlling them with a main central computer. But you notice your voice is becoming much more important. Uh, I think you'll be talking to your environment in, in new and exciting and interesting ways. Now, some people are worried about having microphones all over the house. And so we're going to have to solve this privacy issue. But that's the interface of the future. Microphones and sensors, too. And sensors. Yeah. So when you walk in the door, it says, hi, Leo. Yeah. Let me play your theme song. <laughs> Do you have a theme song? No, I don't. Oh. <laughs> question somebody, <laughs> somebody made a, uh, yeah. made a, uh, at a, I wanted to do this at, uh, at our company. Uh, he, he put a computer that noticed when employees phone joined the Wi-Fi. And of course, as a person comes in there and it would play his theme song as he came in the door and every employee had a theme song because the, the, the ambient system knew you had just arrived. That's braved the world a little bit. Uh, <laughs> here's James Babbitt, though, from San Diego. He says, what positive outcomes have you had, uh, have, excuse me, you and your network had uh, from the COVID pandemic? We were well prepared because we were already doing so much stuff remote. Um, all of our, many of our, as I was mentioning, many, many of our guests were on uh, Zoom. Actually, before that, it was Skype uh, from day one. Because being in Petaluma, we almost had to do that. Nobody was 
local. Uh, so that wasn't such a big transition for us. The hard thing for us was people not being in the office and they're not coming back. And I think this is kind of a trend nationwide is people aren't anxious to come back to the office. You've all those tech campuses. What's happening? Empty. They're empty. Right. So, uh, and, and you know, it's sad when I see, uh, old line companies forcing, uh, employees to come back because, well, that's how we've always done it. But that's the old Henry Ford industrial model of work. And it's not going to be that way going forward. So I think we were well prepared. We were kind of already somewhat in that. Um, I What I miss is we used to have live studio audiences all the time. And I really miss that. That was something that I improved on talk radio because you don't, you know, KGO is famously locked down. They'd had a shooting in the 80s and they were very yeah. locked down. You couldn't have people in this in the studio, but we would have people coming. Shooting in the door. was in the control room, and Jim Dunbar had been there. Yeah, uh, it was terrible. Famous name in radio, and terrible. somebody just came in. And he was getting messages in his head or yeah. something like that. Yeah, it was know. a madman. So, um, so well, we have a we have a large room with lots of chairs, and we'd have twenty or thirty people. Sometimes people from all over the world was very come. relaxed, comfortable. It was wonderful. Yeah, we can't do that anymore. No, which is a shame. But we can go to more of our listeners. Uh, Peter Sargent in Round Rock, uh, Arizona, I guess, says, we are approximately the same age. And I was wondering, what thoughts you have around a succession plan for the network as you (laughs) and Lisa contemplate retirement? This is obviously somebody who listens very closely to what we're doing. Yeah, I'm 65, going to be 66 next month. Um, The nice thing about what we do is you can do it forever. Paul Harvey did it till the very Almost last. The day he died, yeah. yeah, and uh, so I would like to keep doing this, but I also don't want to do it twenty four seven. So uh, we have uh, some young people in the, uh, you know, we have Micah Sargent, who's in it under thirty, believe it or not, who's a great talent. I think he's going to do very well. Aunt Pruitt, uh, Jason Howell. We have other staff hosts as opposed to the people we bring in over Zoom and Skype. Uh, who are on prem? As far as retirement, what would you go back to Chinese history? What yes, would you yeah, do? that's my yeah? plan. Yeah. No, I told you this is what I want to do. That's a crazy idea. I want to stream a late night show about 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. where I just talk. Maybe we have a little cafe ambience in the background, some tinkling piano music. I tell stories. I read poems. I just ramble because. I, when I go to sleep, I like to listen to audiobooks, but then I always get mad because I miss a whole bun of, bunch of it because within 10 minutes, I'm out. So I want to do a show where you don't, nothing consequential is happening. There's nothing stimulating, and you'll just go to sleep, and you won't feel bad that you missed it. But do you have, one of the things I found when I retired... Uh, yeah, how did you do it? Did you think you weren't going to be doing it anymore? Uh, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe weekly, which is what I'm doing, which yeah. has worked out well, and I... I also retired from teaching, and I didn't want to give that up, so I do this 10-week classes at Stanford through their continuing education. So I'm doing both things that I did because the problem is, you know, I know a lot of people who worked hard their whole lives, and they just can't wait till they retire, and then they, I just want to travel. I want to play golf. I want to learn cooking. I want to learn exotic languages and so forth. I like doing what I do, teaching yeah, and, and communicating. We are so, working. Well, That's the problem. That, is, that was the problem. <laughs> Uh, I've got someone in Minneapolis, T.J. Asher. Thank you for this question. Who has been or was the most influential person shaping your career in radio? Well, I think some of my style comes from Arthur Godfrey. Whoa. You and I are old enough to remember Arthur Godfrey. Yeah. Probably nobody listening is. Uh, Paul Harvey. I liked uh, 
even Ed McMahon. I liked the hosts who were warm, approachable, authentic, um, and I wanted to be like that. I wanted to be a real person uh, on the radio. And I came from that era where there were people like Jack Parr and Arthur Godfrey. I mean, I wasn't. I was. I. I don't actually remember them being live, but it was recent enough. I could. You know, and you grew up in Manhattan? About them. I grew up in Rhode Island, but we could hear the New York radio stations. So I would listen to, we were talking about Gene Shepard. I thought you were born in Manhattan. Perf- right? I was born in Manhattan. My parents, my dad was at Columbia. He was a, gra- a doctorate. Uh, he's a geologist. He's a geologist. Yeah. He was getting his degree there. So when I was three or four, he got a job at Brown and we moved to, to Providence. But uh, So I don't really remember Manhattan. But I always feel, when I get there, I always say, something about this, I, I feel like I'm home. Uh, so I think that um, I think that uh, I don't remember what we were talking about. Well, the question was who influenced you. you <laughs> who influenced me? You answered very bountifully. Thank yes. you for that. Leo. Uh, I gave you many influences. And we're going to go to Brooklyn, New York next uh, with oh, Mike, yeah. Mike Edwards. After all your experience, if you had to redo your studio, what would you do differently? The first studio uh, was a little bed and breakfast, and I was up in the attic. People thought it was my house. It wasn't. <laughs> it was up in the attic. And then eventually we metastasized through that whole bed and breakfast. And it was quite nice. And the room I ended up in was wood paneled. Had uh, It was just per- – it felt really great. And I always – I had always been told that the key to uh, a good show is a sense of place, that you know where it is. Even if it's not real, you kind of know where it is. It's not in a, it's not in space. So I always wanted to create a real sense of place. We moved down the street to a giant old furniture warehouse that was a drugstore when I was first in Petaluma that we took over 10,000 square foot above and below. And we built this fairy tale studio, which was my dream studio. We got a Hollywood designer, Robert, Roger Ambrose, to come in. And we made it. It was an open floor. It was the dream. It was incredible. I said because I was inspired by City TV in Canada where they had uh, an open office plan and every desk had a drop for a key camera and microphones and they could move it and just go to that desk, plug in, and now that reporter is on the air from his desk. So that was, the, that was and I even went to City TV and, and, you know, toured it and took notes and thought about how to do this. That's what I wanted. Turned out everybody working in the office hated it because... They were always on camera. They hated it. And some of the audience hated it. I remember when we first opened, somebody said, I just saw somebody walk by behind you while you're doing a show with a spoon in his hand going to lunch. And I said, well, yeah, that was the point. We had windows on the street where you could see cars going by. I loved that. Um, we couldn't stay there. They sold the building out from under us. Turns out it was a pyramid scheme. The woman who did that is now in jail. The government owns the building. We moved to a kind of tilt-up, kind of boring uh, place. Uh, we turned it into as cozy a place as we could. Um, and it's still pretty cozy. But that was my dream was that we called it the Brick House. It was a beautiful, beautiful place. It's nice to realize your dreams and, and also yeah. points out and highlights just how important your surroundings can be in terms of what you want to present aesthetically as well as in terms of the content. I mean, here we are in this great room. We look like we could jam here. There's a lot of liquor. There's <laughs> guitars surrounding us. I just want to give people a picture. But there's here. no video, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, you'd have to clean it up just a little bit if there were video, I think. But other than that, <laughs> maybe put the liquor away. <laughs> we go to Oregon City. Nathan Cashian, join us. Nathan, thank you for this question. Who are the interviewers 
you look up to, you've already said that, or to some extent, but may want to amplify it, or perhaps have tried to emulate early in your career. Actually, I want to talk to you because you're one of them about this. Because I think interviewing is very interesting, different kinds of interviewers. And uh, I admire your style more than... So there's, there's people like Larry King, who famously would never prepare, never read the book, and would just fire these rapid... Questions. Tell me about this book. Yeah, tell me about it. what's what do you, what's what's your point? <laughs> uh, and then there are interviewers like Terry Gross, who is I think somewhat of fresh air on on uh, public radio, who's I think sometimes overprepared, and uh, and asks extremely lengthy questions sometimes because she's overprepared. Yeah. And and so I'm trying to find, and I think I'm, you're really a better model for this, because what I want to do in an interview is have a conversation, and. What I think the most important thing is to listen to the person you're talking to because they give you clues about what they want to talk about and they give you a hint about where you want to go. And if you're too prepared, and I hear Terry Gross do this a lot, unfortunately. She's a great interviewer and I love her interviews, but I hear her do this all the time. I hear the person she's talking to drop a hint that I go, oh, just follow that. And she's going to her next question, which she has written down in front of her. And I think you're good at that. I think you're very good at a conversational style. Well, it's good of you to say, and thank you. Um, I think my next book is going to be on interviewing and conversation because there is a kind of thin line between the two, I've always felt. Uh, and you you can't necessarily be overprepared. But the, the real key, people always ask me, you know, is there any kind of dollop of wisdom you have about it? Listen. Yeah, you, know, you listen to what yep. the person you're talking to. But you should read the book. I well, I, I always read the book <laughs> yeah, as much too. as possible, or at least. <laughs> yeah. you, but you know, people looked at that kind of strangely. Like, um, no, you got to listen. The, the whole Larry King axiomatic thing that you don't read the book, you just come in with your basic curiosity, always seemed almost like violating some sacred commandment to me. You know, well, if you the person's going to gonna both, be though. there with you. You should know the person. You should know know why they're there. Exactly. Uh, and oh, there's always material in there that gives you a it's a, it's like following a thread it's like pulling a thread off a sweater you're looking for those little bits that you can pull that thread because that's where the gold is right you should do a book on this too i mean no 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 i have thought a lot about it though but you know i love interviewing it's my favorite thing to do yeah so do i um yeah. and i do a lot of it still in this retirement i phase. will read your book <laughs> uh actually i worked you know the name ken dykewald no head of age wave uh he goes to Davos all the time. He's uh, he's done some original kind of gerontological research. And he said, I, I said, I don't want to write a book about interviewing. I, I'm a literary scholar. That's my background, you know. He said, no, I think you've got that book in you. During the pandemic, we did 10 Zooms, and he drew me out. He was a great interlocutor. I mean, part of his job was to get the book out of me, and he really did the job. Well, I hope we Let's get some write more, that uh, book. I do. I really do. Some more of our listeners in this uh this is uh, Michael, who's joining us from Springfield, Virginia. Michael Alessino, and thank you for the question. As the owner of a successful podcasting network, have you ever seriously considered selling the Twit Network? If not, why not? I'd also like to tell you now that we're doing a podcast, if you could also answer Michael's question, but also answer a question that's been bugging me. Where do you find the capital when you're in the podcast? I've decided there are probably as many podcasts in America now as there are firearms in homes. I think so. so it's very close. It's, a, it's a one-to-one correspondence. It'd be a good Herb Cain line, right? Uh, uh, there's another name from the past. Yeah. Uh, to, to Michael's question first. Uh, you ever so thought about we never selling? had any investors. Uh, and 
the only reason I could start a podcast is because I, as a radio guy, I had a lot of radio equipment lying around. So I had the equipment, which was the only capital investment. Podcasting is cheap. So we were able to start doing it that way. And then we've just bootstrapped. Uh, the first few years, I said, I don't want to take ads. I'm only going to take donations. And it was never enough to really grow past one show, basically. So in the year three, I think, we started doing advertising. And that really was a very good move. We, I didn't want to do the 19 minutes of an hour. By the way, the other thing that killed radio is 19 minutes of ads an hour, which is the FCC limit. Uh, we didn't want to do that. I said, we're going to do no more than one ad every half hour, and we will pick our advertisers. And instead of being pre-recorded hype ads, I want to do an introduction uh, to the audience of the advertiser and talk about features and benefits, very old school, right? And uh, But that's worked well for us. So that was what gave us the wherewithal to build that studio and to add more shows and stuff. We wanted to sell it. In fact, I think the future of podcasting, sadly, is a little dim because of companies like Spotify, iHeart, and Amazon, uh, their goal, all three of them, is to get you to listen to shows in their app. And there's a very simple reason for that. If you listen in the Spotify app, they know who you are. They have your credit card. They can gather all the information. They know exactly what you listen to. They have all the data that Facebook and Google sell to advertisers. And that has become the drug that advertisers these days want. They want, to, they want all this demographic information. It's debatable whether that's valuable, but they think it is. So these companies are basically taking podcasting out of the realm that it was in when I started, which is an RSS feed where we gather no information. We know nothing about the audience except maybe that you downloaded the show, but we don't know who you are. Uh, they want to move that into more of the domain of you know surveillance capitalism. And what, me, what that means is advertisers are pulling away from into true independent advertisers, ad, uh, podcasts, into this sphere. It's going to get harder. It is already much harder to sell ads than it used to be. And so we realized this a couple of years ago, just before COVID, unfortunately. We realized this, and we started to look for partners. We realized the future for independent podcasts is not bright. Unfortunately, nobody wanted to buy us. I can't figure out why. So uh, we did. We did. We 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 hired somebody and uh, we shopped ourselves and we talked to all the big companies. I think the biggest problem was it was mostly me doing the shows, and I'm old. Uh, it was about a, a slice. Uh, it was tech, and when we started talking about this, the big thing were true crime podcasts. We weren't sexy or celebrity podcasts. We just weren't sexy. So uh, we never were able to find a buyer. We gave up on that because COVID really put the kibosh on that. Nobody was doing anything in COVID. I think at this point, if somebody like you said, should I do a podcast? I think you've, your model is probably the correct model, which is member supported because I, I think advertising is going to go away. And I think it's a bad, I think it's sad. Uh, independent uh, uh, podcasting is going to be very difficult. Although I know, you know, you work with Ron Owens, uh, his wife, Jan Black, mm -hmm. former anchor KCBS, has a podcast with her daughter that's an Apple podcast. And they promoted it and they did it very well by her and her daughter. Uh, I know it's, uh, it's, it's reaped some really good rewards in terms of finance, but they have a lot of downloads. And, you know, the key... They say, in terms of podcasts, if you have a certain amount of downloads, you go to the advertisers and the advertisers come to you. Yeah, it's not so much true anymore because yeah. advertisers, 
you pay, you charge by just as radio does by cost per thousand impressions. So how many downloads you have is very important. You have too many downloads, you're expensive. Advertisers really, really want to know uh, what's the demographic, what's the geography. So more and more you're seeing advertising inserted, direct insertion, programmatically based on demographic information, just like you see on Google and Facebook. And uh, that's the future. And the kinds of advertising I like to do, which is me introducing you to a product that I know about, is is just as old-fashioned as Absolutely Godfrey. Almost, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Gray Matter goes all over the world. We're going to go to more of our listeners. Dan Huber joins us from Erie, Pennsylvania. Dan, thank you for this. He wants to know, the shows on Twitter, more than podcasts, they take me back to the ZDTV days. Yeah. What makes Twit so different than podcasts? Well, because we did do video very early on, and really I always kind of thought of it as, I don't know, in commercial radio, everybody you meet wants to be at some day like my goal is to own a radio station, and I kind of did that. I but it wasn't no. There's no tower. There's no license. There's no transmitter. But I, it's like owning a radio station, and then it became like a little tiny TV station, and it, it all comes back to my what I was saying, which is that sense of place is important. I think, and and truthfully, a podcast can, is audio is fine. That's all people really have time to listen to. The advantage of the video, though, even if they only watch it one time in 10, is they kind of now in their minds can see you and see that sense of place, and you become more of a friend. TV's very powerful. Uh, I mean, it. there's something about it that makes people think you're their friend. Radio is powerful because it's intimate. It's a theater of the mind. But it's theater of the mind, and you can walk down the street and not get recognized. But if you are on even the stupidest TV show, you're a major celebrity all of a sudden. People, there's something about it. And so what I wanted to do with Twitter is to combine both. I wanted that personal intimacy, that connection. I didn't want to be a celebrity. I didn't want to be distanced. But I wanted you to feel like you were sitting across from me. I always wanted our shows to sound like we're at a bar and you were sitting in you and listening to a great conversation. And that way radio is almost a more intimate medium. It is more, because I'm in your ear when you're doing radio. exactly. Uh, And television is the passivity of watching the screen. And nowadays... McLuhan said it was a hot medium. Yeah, exactly. The old hot, cold medium. Marshall McLuhan and all that. There's another uh, person joining us. This is Robert Shulji from Los Angeles. says, what future technology is Leo most excited about and why? Um, hmm. I'm kind of a funny uh, guy in that respect. I, um, I'm learning, uh, I, I love to code, and I use a programming language that is as old as I am. It's called Lisp. It was one of the first programming languages. And I use Emacs, which is an, a, an editor that predates personal computing. It's so old. <laughs> uh, so I like kind of this vintage stuff. I think probably the phone uh, is in some degrees the kind of the perfect instantiation model of, of, of a computing device because it's always connected, it's always on. It's really kind of, we've taken it for granted now, but it's really kind of amazing what the smartphone in our pocket does. You got everything there. It's all there. Yeah. So I think that's probably the best technology. I just got uh, the new Oculus Quest Pro, which is... Meta's $1,600 VR thing. And I've been very skeptical about VR. Still am somewhat. 
but I have to say, uh, I've been playing with it. There's this game where you go out and you go, you get in an elevator, you go up to like the hundredth story of a skyscraper, and the elevator opens, and there's just a plank going out over the street, and you're, you know, you're in your room, you're standing on your carpet, you know, you're completely safe. I could not bring myself to walk out on that plank. It was terrifying. Hmm. So there's something going on with that yeah. virtual thing. I don't know where that is. That might be an interesting. When you're talking about the smartphones and all, um, this talking about aging before, and uh, I love this bit that Wanda Sykes does, who's a brilliant comic. Oh, I love her. Yeah. And she's on her phone, and she's saying, uh, "You know, I can't understand where I left my phone. I haven't been able to find it." You know, she's sitting there <laughs> with the phone in her ear. <laughs> Looks like having your glasses on your head, right? <laughs> exactly. I always think that the we've had virtual reality since movies. That really the best motion pictures because of they combine sound and pictures to create emotions and you forget you're in a theater you're really there that's that's virtual reality that's real storytelling so this putting a thing on your head is kind of dopey but I do think there's going to be improvements I mean already motion pictures are more in, enveloping than ever right I mean they, you really are there. You old enough to remember how excited we were at CinemaScope? Oh, yeah. I remember going with my grandma to see Circus World, and it went all the way across. Those 3D movies where they come out of the screen? Yeah, no, I didn't get into those. (laughs) House With the red-green glasses? No, I didn't. (laughs) I've been surprised. Well, they started bringing them back recently. Michael Slade. And it was a failure, right? That's right. It didn't make it. Michael Slade, thank you for this. He says, podcasters like Kara Swisher seem to be using services like Riverside FM and Twitter Spaces as part of their technical infrastructure. If you were building Twit today, would you still build a studio? No, it would be very different now. Yeah. Uh, when we started in 2005, actually, our first podcast is, was in October 2004. Uh, so it's been 18 years exactly. But uh, when we first started, there was no infrastructure. In fact, you know, the donation system might have succeeded back then had there been Patreon. All of this stuff has come a long way. Nowadays, if somebody says, "Should I? how should I do a podcast? I just say, go to Anchor FM. It's as easy as pie. You don't need anything, any fancy equipment. They'll post it everywhere. It's so much easier. I, and when I started, I was hand coding the RSS feeds. I was typing in by hand because there were no tools to do it. I mean, it's come a long way. You know, the old uh, saw about, well, computers, they're just tools, and uh, it's how we use them, and they can be used for good or evil and all the rest of that. Um, where are we seeing things in terms of the dangers now? Where do you see the big dangers, the darker side of computers? It's really easy to say, oh, look at the horrible things on Twitter, and look at how people are losing their lives to TikTok. But it's also just as easy, we don't do it as often, to say, look how... Uh, Disadvantaged communities have found a voice on Twitter and are ex- are exposed to the world. And I think a lot of what's happened in the in the trans communities and the gay communities is because of technology bringing gay and trans people into our lives. So, and I can go on and on. There are many many examples. I think there are just as many examples of the transformative power of technology, if not more, than of the negative. So it's both. It's the world, and as with everything in the world. Uh, it, I think it is neutral, and I think it, it can be, go both ways. See, I would hate to see, and I worry about this trend, that we throw out technology because we're so afraid of the harms. We need to find solutions for the harms. We need to get back to norms, by the way. But the power, what we're doing right now, 
is thanks to technology. And people are listening in South Africa, all over the world. That's remarkable. So you're not only the tech guy, you're sort of a armchair philosopher, and that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you, because I thought I could draw a lot of this out of you. Well, and I don't want to be an evangelist for technology either. Well, I'm not I don't a, think you've ever been an evangelist. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not, oh, technology is going to solve all our problems? Yeah. It's like the world. It's just, it's enhancing what we've got, the good and the bad. It's like you said, wasteland of television. Analogy is perfect in many ways. Uh, let me go to Kansas City, Missouri next, and uh, Brett Dikas, who says, Leo, thank you for all that you do. What is your preferred uh, count of participants in a group discussion? Interesting Well, oh, that's question. interesting. Yeah. Like the Dunbar number of 150? I don't know. Um, Twitter was great <laughs> when it was just a few thousand people. Every social network I've ever been on has been better when it was an affinity group, a small affinity group. So I think that's the key. Not the numbers so much, but but just that sense of shared purpose and interest. So that's one of the reasons Discord, I think, is really interesting. We have a Discord for our uh, club. Uh, we club. do too? Yeah. I don't know if you've used it much, but it is an affinity group, and mm -hmm. it is people of like minds. And so... You know, starting from a ground of being that makes the conversations, I think, much more valuable. So I, I don't think there's a number, but I do think it can get too big and it can get too diverse. And in fact, that's what happens. And what's on Doesn't Twitter. It too diverse, too. Well, it's hard. It's hard to have a conversation if we don't all have the same ground of being. So that's why you and I get along, because we have a, sa a certain if you, if you listen to this show, we're talking about ancient history, but we understand each other because we have that shared ancient history. So I think that that's, that shared ground of being is pretty important, that you can create it. But that's what's interesting about Twitter, for instance, is, you know, there's something called Black Twitter, which is great. It's fascinating. And it, it because Twitter lets you only follow people, hear from people you follow, you can create within Twitter a community and there are many communities inside Twitter that we don't even know about that uh, because there's that shared ground of being, I think they're more valuable. I've heard that Twitter is now just a lot of kind of porn and crypto. Is that true? There is a lot of porn and crypto on yeah. Twitter. But you have to know where to look. You have to follow those people, right? Um, as soon as uh, any conversation on Twitter goes to Bitcoin and crypto, I just unfollow those people and I never hear from them again. <laughs> Well, I want to plug an episode we did with the uh, That's interesting. president Coinbase. of Coinbase. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Um, usually we go an hour, and I think in this case, uh, well, we got a lot of people who want to talk to you. Is, uh, I'll talk as long as you want. Good. I, you, mostly my shows, Michael, are three, four hours long. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Uh, I'm used to that hour, uh, but I don't have to be bound by it. It's See? not straightjacketing. That's what happens. <laughs> Especially I get to talk to people like you. It's a pleasure. You. James nice. Babbitt from San Diego says, you perform many great characters and accents. Have you um, performed on audiobooks from Audible or do you plan to do anything like that in the future? I think in retirement. That's So I wanted to be an actor. You know, the Chinese history was a side, side, you know, a, a dead end alley. But I always wanted to be an actor. And I went to Yale thinking that they had a great acting school. They did. Robert Brewstein and all yeah. that. Yeah. It's the graduate acting school. And when wow. I got there, undergraduates, it's a lit it's really a literary major. Yeah. You're you're studying plays and dramaturgy. You're not acting. So that's when I kind of said, well, maybe I'll do Chinese. But I did find the campus radio station. And what I found out is really 
I don't know if I'm a narcissist. I don't know if I need attention, but I like to perform. And so radio really did scratch that itch for me for a long time. Uh, and it did because it, was, it wasn't me. It was more two-way. I really like talk radio. Mm-hmm. It wasn't me up on a stage declaiming. It was a conversation. I really it's the interactivity. That. It's the yeah. sort of thing. You remember Jim Eason from KGO days used to say, you write a letter to the newspaper, maybe they'll print it, maybe they won't. If you're listening to a news talk station, you can get on and say what you, as long as you get past the screener. Yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you what I think about So I think that when I retire, I probably will do audiobooks. And I want to do them where there's lots of characters so I can do all the voices. Maybe you could also do a little stage acting. Have you thought about uh, You that? know, for a while I toyed with the idea of, uh, I thought, you know, I was never going to make it in Hollywood as a young man because I'm not a leading man, but you know they need older actors who are willing to take smaller parts. So I thought maybe I could go down and audition <laughs> and get those old character parts. I don't think I'll do that. I think I'll do the audio books. That sounds safer. And a little theater. I did a lot of theater uh, when I was... What, what, I had a program director in radio uh, at KNBR, Rick Sadel, who said, you should take improv because there's something not clicking. You're not real. So I went and I studied acting. I took improv. I fell in love with it because that was my first love. I think it did make me better at radio. Biggest part of improv is listening, right? Yeah. Uh, and it reignited, rekindled that love of, uh, of theater. I do really, I love going to theater. And I think I probably would love doing theater. So maybe I'll do some amateur theater. Oh, we so. could do some improv. I mean, there used to be improv. Improv's used to be fun. big in San Francisco. It was always big in Chicago. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we need more improv. Yeah. Uh, we also... I suppose maybe need more of our uh, listeners here. Let me get Rajan Shandi on from Los Angeles who wants to know, what do you think of the success of so many YouTube channels and how big this market has become? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about YouTube. You know, my son, who's 28, uh, is doing really well. on. T- he's a TikTok chef, 2.1 million followers. Wow. He's uh, been able to parlay that into success on YouTube. So I've had to moderate my opinion of YouTube for a long time. I really thought, this is not good. This is, uh, this is people, uh, and, and he does this too, really, playing to the algorithm, not to the audience. Because the algorithm is what makes you successful on YouTube, and it's what makes you successful on TikTok. And once you realize that, you stop paying attention to the audience. You pay attention to the algorithm and you start. So, for instance, and you'll see this now everywhere on YouTube, it turns out if the thumbnail of your video has you making a face like, ah, with big letters and exclamation marks, you get more downloads. So everybody does that. And I think it's cheesy. It's <laughs> a nice uh, word for it. Yeah. So I... I have mixed feelings about it. What's great about it is it gives anybody an opportunity uh, to do a show. And there are some amazing people doing really great stuff on YouTube. The most successful people on YouTube are the ones making faces. You know, Mr. Beast, who is the number one guy on YouTube, is now raising money at a valuation of $1.5 billion. Uh, And his whole, the whole way he got his audience was giving away money. And I don't know about you, but in radio, I always thought the cheesiest thing you could do in radio is have a giveaway, to have a contest. Advertisers always saying, can you give away some more stuff? And I said, no, I don't want to buy an audience. To me, that's the same thing as playing to the algorithm. I want the audience to 
get value out of what we're doing. But it was doing. the way they used to do radio promotion. You know, I mean, not only giving, literally giving away money. Buying saying, an audience. Yeah, exactly. The first 20 people who call will get a $100 yeah. bill or I whatever. I hate that. And they would do it, by the way, they would do it, nobody knows this because you couldn't tell anybody, during sweeps week. Yeah. Because that's when the ratings were being done. So we knew, you know, four times a year it's sweeps week that everybody's going to have a diary and write it down. So you would do all this stupid stuff. You're Again, you're playing to the diary, and playing the, to the algorithm. And those Arbitron ratings were so kind of shaky to oh, begin with. Oh, they were terrible. They were weird. Just the uh, so-called empirical way they did things. Well, that's another thing that killed radio is they went from having listeners write down what shows they'd listen to. And by the way, this is why Rush Limbaugh did so well, because he had devoted listeners who would go into the diary and write Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh, Rush Limbaugh, even you, if they didn't listen. You remember Every, Lee Rogers from KGO? Pardon me? Yeah, Lee yeah, Rogers, yeah. Lee Rogers said to me, SF Weekly has best radio host. I'm going to tell my listeners to write in my name, so I'll be the best radio there host. And sure enough. He won. Yeah. So then... Arbitron went to a people meter where they actually measured it. And every radio station in the country's ratings plummeted. <laughs> that well, was we, another We another are going problem. back to ancient history here. But I have to ask you, because you mentioned TikTok again, um, does it concern you at all that they have a different video that they show in China from the videos they use, the video they use here? They have a different algorithm. They have a different app. Uh, I mean, they're, they're separate well, they don't have Facebook in China. They don't have That's right. Twitter in China. That's right. It's a very controlled media environment. And I'm not at all gives, surprised. makes a lot of people nervous, not to necessarily bring Fox News into this again, because I have reservations like you about Fox News and serious concerns. But they say they have to abide by the Chinese government's rules. I, I think that's a straw man. And it's a little xenophobic. I think we are being manipulated, absolutely, by Roger Murdoch, by Mark Zuckerberg, soon by Elon Musk, there are enemies at home <laughs> that are probably more effective than the Chinese Communist Party. I'm not so worried about them. You shouldn't be worried about them. You should be worried about Roger Ailes. Actually, dead, as a so Chinese history anymore. student, which yeah. you seriously were at one point, I've often I love thought, China. notwithstanding Taiwan and notwithstanding Tibet, and those are big notwithstandings, yeah. the Chinese never seem to be all that concerned about expanding outside of Asia. Yeah, they're, I, well, I'm not an expert. They're, I believe, more interested in soft power than they are. Yeah, in hard exactly. Power. And, and they're getting at, a lot of it in Africa and yeah, Pakistan. And, yeah. Uh, they maybe worry about that, the Belt and Road Initiative. Maybe worry about that. Yeah. Uh, nobody's going to invade the United States of America. We are uninvadable, aren't we? We are not invadable because everybody has a gun. <laughs> You're not, you'd be nuts to try to take over this vast country. Maybe you'd nuke it, but that's why I believe we don't treat China as an enemy. We treat them as a trading partner. It's crazy not to treat – this is why China is smart. That's soft power. You don't fight a war with somebody whose your economy relies on. We should we're, we should build bridges to China, not not start to try to find reasons to hate. China's them. getting closer though to um, to Russia than it's been in a long time. There used to be you know this kind of fear of communist oh. conspiracy between the Sino-Soviet alliance yeah. and all the rest of that. That alliance has taken. A it's a mistake to worry about ideologies. It's much smarter to worry about people. Putin is a threat, and Xi is and Xi is probably a threat. Yeah. Uh, 
Worry about them, not the ideology. That's not the problem. It is madmen, and there are a few at home as well, who want power at all costs. Those are the people to worry about, especially the ones who have nukes. Okay. A lot of people we want to get to uh, at least a few more questions here. Uh, this is from Tempe, Arizona. This is Chris Clark who says, Leo and Michael, have you ever had an episode of laryngitis? What happened and what did you learn? <laughs> have you? Wonderful kind of... Have uh, you? That's a great question. Yeah, out of the uh, expectation of questions. Um, I have... I remember there used to be a little radio station called KTIM, which you may know. You of. had a hot tub. What was the name of your it's show? Beyond the Hot Tub. Beyond yeah. the Hot Tub. Did you know that, Alex? His show was called Beyond the Hot Tub. It was a Marin County show. <laughs> Were you uh, in a hot tub doing no, it? No, no, no. It was beyond uh, it. But I, there, there was a guy uh, who taught at San Francisco State with me who met his students in a hot tub, uh, and they did some acid. And this really yeah, dates very me, very kind of a, yeah. yeah, San Francisco State, <laughs> where I taught for years. But this whole idea of... Um, uh, you know the the whole sense of where radio has been. I mean, that's been kind of underlying a lot of our conversation, as yeah. opposed to we're old radio guys. Happening. And I don't I don't want people to listen and go, "Okay, boomer, uh, those were the good old days." And so when I'm I'm no, but excuse me, I did lose my voice once at KTIM. And did I'm, you? Yeah, and and I'm getting a little raspy right now, even. But uh, it's not laryngitis. I think it's something else. But I was on the I'm air. I was move interviewing. The, uh, chair a little farther away, if you don't mind. <laughs> It's not that. <laughs> Rest assured. How's this for name dropping? I was interviewing Jerry Garcia. Oh, wow. In a hot tub? Not in a hot tub, no. Okay. But I could feel my voice going. Oh, no. And it went to a whisper. Um, I've got that on tape. I thought, oh, uh, this would be great. Do you have all the stuff you did on tape? I have a lot of it on these old audios, yeah. Uh, can we work on you to convert that to digital and post it somewhere? Uh, you don't have to work on me. It's been kind of in my mind. We got to do this. Yeah. Those tapes are not going to last. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend up in Canada, a guy named John Donaby. He worked uh, K, uh, KF, KCRB in uh, Toronto. Yeah. Interviewed everybody. Everybody. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, everybody. Tapes in his garage, reel to reel tapes in his garage. I worked on him for the longest time. I said, John, those are going to disintegrate. That's history in your garage. And I never was able to get them. So please. Digitize those. I got a good nudge from you there. Thank you for that. Because I've been thinking about it. For I long. have lost my voice. I always lose my voice in Vegas. We used to go do shows. At least uh, you don't lose your. Not my virginity. No, your pocket. Oh, my pocket. <laughs> no, I don't gamble. But it's so dry down there. So I always get a Vegas throat. Yeah. Uh, and we've done uh, trade shows down there. I don't like going down. There I miss Vegas. Uh, I used to go play in the World Series of Poker. Did time. you? Yeah. Um, Were you good? Never in the ten thousand entry. I didn't have oh, that kind of fun. money. But, uh, yeah, no, I've been a tournament player for years. I don't have the nerve to play. I always want, I love my, you know, neighborhood game. And I always look at the poker rooms and go, I wish I had the nerve to play. That's a great thing, though, about conversation. Who thought we'd be talking about poker in Vegas? (laughs) I was in Vegas last week. Were you? I love it. It's so much fun. But you couldn't talk because of your throat. Well, I try not to sing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Let me say thanks to you for being with us. And, uh... Thanks to all of you who were with us live and all of you who will be listening to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. An important reminder for those of you uh, who you know and who you respect and who you care about, let them know about Gray Matter and let them find us and let them join our unique and growing membership, our community of listeners. Simply go to graymatter.show. That's all you need to do. Thanks to all who joined us live and thanks again, special thanks to Leo Laporte. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly 
at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.